So this morning, our message is one that is in a little bit more of a solemn tone. And I say that up front because a lot of my personality many times is one of excitement and joking and laughing and how it is that we engage a text in a way that Lord willing is going to let people see what God has to say in the text, but also sometimes to help encourage people. People come in from many times difficult weeks. They've gone through a lot of things. They're wrestling with hard decisions. And sometimes in church, it's just good to come in and focus on God, lift our voices, celebrate. But this is a message in this series that is going to be a little bit more solemn in its tone. So I want to start with a story. There is a story of a general who won so many victories that his king requested to see his sword. In the king's mind, any sword that had been used so victoriously had to be impressive. So upon receiving the sword and looking over it carefully, he sent the sword in a message back to the general, and the message simply was this, tell the general that I find his sword no better than any other. And upon receiving that note, the general sent a note back to the king that simply said, tell the king he should have sent for the arm that was accustomed to wielding it. (laughs) The wonder of an object is often found in the glory of its owner. As Christians, we are captivated by the simple objects that Jesus used in victory. The cross, the empty tomb, the bread, the wine, all of these are very simple objects, but they symbolize an incredible, extraordinary victory that Jesus has given on behalf of humanity. We often hold those different pieces in high esteem. For example, it's not uncommon for believers to wear crosses on necklaces or to have a cross that is printed on the front of a t-shirt. And a lot of church buildings will have crosses on top to let people know this is a Christian church, this is a Christian building. We sing about and we celebrate The cross and the empty tomb, many times we do so at a much higher level right around Easter. We find ourselves when people are being baptized in the waters of baptism, when they come out of the waters, we're clapping and we celebrate what's going on in that moment and we solemnly participate in communion. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But here's the struggle that we're going to find along the way. That is, over time, exposure to simple things dilutes our excitement and the owner is distanced from the object this is a tendency that is unbelievably prevalent when it comes to the elements of communion the bread and the wine are simple objects that symbolize Jesus's victory over sin and over death and over the grave and the more a Christian participates in communion the easier it becomes to get desensitized to the significance of the elements If you'll think about it from a biblical perspective, Jesus never told us, remember my miracles. He never told us, remember my birth. He did say, remember my death. And it is in participating in communion, the receiving of the bread and the wine, that we remember his death as he instructed us to do. So today we start a two-week message series simply called the sacraments. 
And I know that word is kind of a strange word, especially to those who are coming out of a Protestant faith. We, we talk more about communion and the Lord's Supper and about baptism. The word sacrament is more often, you know, connected with Catholicism or being Lutheran or Episcopalian. But I want you to know what that term means in case somebody brings it up. And I've put this definition in your notes so that you would have it to go back and look at. This is not what I would consider to be an easy definition, but it is a complete definition coming from multiple angles. So here's simply a definition of the idea of sacrament. Uh, the sacraments of baptism and communion, those are the two that we celebrate in the Protestant faith, are simple practices instituted by Jesus and graciously given to the church, which reflect Christ's redemption of sinners and symbolize God's inner work in the lives of believers. The sacraments reflect a reality far beyond water, bread, and wine for those who have eyes to see and a heart to understand. We do not participate in the sacraments to earn salvation, but rather those who are saved participate and celebrate because of what God has done for us. I'm praying that between this week and next week, that God would give us new eyes to see the simple objects of his victory. New eyes to be able to celebrate remembering what Christ has done on our behalf. At this time, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 22. We're going to be in verses 14 through 20. This morning, we're going to start with the topic of communion. And this is a sacrament that is closely tied to the Passover meal. And there's this ongoing debate as to what the Passover meal or the Seder meal looked like back in Jesus' day. And I, I want you to hear from the very beginning, I am not saying that this is exactly, exactly what took place in the upper room, but I am saying that based on the Jewish traditions that led into the first century, based on the writings of the first century, and based on Christian tradition that flowed out of the first century for the last 2,000 years, these are very specific pieces that give an overview of what that celebration might have looked like. So at this time, I invite you to look with me in your Bibles, Luke's Gospel, chapter number 22. We begin in verse number 14. When the hour had come, he, speaking of Jesus, reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, at this time, we are asking that your spirit would guide us into truth. God, may we have fresh eyes to see this text, the elements of communion, the significance, the symbolism, the setting, the purpose behind all of it. God, help us to remember your death the way 
you desire for us to remember your death. And we'll be grateful for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. So each of the gospel writers will contain a section in their letters that describes this final meal that Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room. This is the meal that we get our celebration of communion from. But many Christians are unaware of the fact that what we actually read in the gospel accounts is a small description of a much larger celebration that was taking place, the Passover meal. So if we're going to actually understand communion, it begins by understanding Passover. So I'm going to ask four different questions as we work our way through this text. And Lord willing, by the time we get to the very end of the text, we're going to see not only the significance of Passover, but how that comes in to communion and how it lays out the redemptive story of God in such a beautiful way. So here's our first question. Why is Passover significant? Why is Passover significant? The Jewish calendar is filled with religious celebrations that have great spiritual significance. And there's just a couple of examples of these. There's the Feast of Pentecost. It commemorates God's provision at harvest time. There's the Feast of Tabernacles. It commemorates Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, living in temporary dwellings and being dependent upon God for food and water daily. There's the Feast of Purim, which celebrates the deliverance of the Jews through the intervention of Queen Esther. There's also the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah. It commemorates the victory of Judas Maccabees over Antiochus Epiphanes and the rededication of temple worship back in 164 B.C. There's a number of these Jewish celebrations. All are significant without question. But the Feast of Passover closely associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, became central within the Jewish calendar. These two feasts, they combined for an eight-day celebration that begins on day one with Passover, and it goes into the next seven days with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two feasts became so interconnected that their names were almost used interchangeably. You can look back and see some of that found in verses 7 and 8. Both of these holidays commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Passover, however, focused upon God's final plague against Egypt, that is the death of the firstborn, and his provision for those who applied the, door, applied the blood to the doorpost of the house. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was named after the type of bread the Israelites were to take with them as they left Egypt in haste. Now, because of the fact it was unleavened, many times people think it's because of the haste. They just didn't have time for that bread to rise like what leaven would normally do. That's the reason for the celebration, but leaven actually goes far beyond that. In Scripture, we find that leaven, in, it speaks of influence, and many times that of evil influence. For Israel, it became a symbol of leaving behind the evil influence of the Egyptian culture. They were to leave that behind before they entered into the land of Canaan. As a reminder of this, the Jewish people were to remove all leaven from their house for a period of seven days with this celebration. The focal point of the first day was the killing of a lamb and the sprinkling of the blood on the altar. It was a reenactment of what God told his people to do on their last night in Egypt. The Israelites were told to take a lamb and they were to place the blood of that lamb around the doorpost of their house 
And when the death angel came through, if the death angel saw that blood applied to the doorpost, that death angel would pass over every house that was not marked by blood was later marked by weeping as people saw the death of the firstborn. According to Mosaic law, these lambs were to be selected on the 10th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. It was on that day that the lamb was to be selected and kept in the house for the next four days. And the reason for that is because the family was to bind with that and get close to that lamb so that when the lamb was actually sacrificed, they would feel the weight of that moment. As best we can tell through biblical scholarship, in the year that Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan would have coincided with his time of arriving in Jerusalem. On the day that the Jewish people were selecting their Passover lamb was on the same day our Heavenly Father selected his, the Lamb of God. Records indicate that upwards of 250,000 lambs would have been sacrificed at Passover. That's even more astounding when we recognize that all of these were to be killed in a two-hour period from 3 to 5 p.m. by priest at the temple. Due to the sheer number of animals that were sacrificed, the blood of those lambs had flowed down into the Kidron Valley so that it was said for days afterwards, the brook at the bottom of the valley would run a crimson red. Passover, it celebrated the exodus of the people of God from bondage in Egypt. But when Jesus celebrated with his disciples in the upper room just before the cross, he began to change the meaning of that. It no longer reflected just the exodus of the people of God out from bondage in Egypt. It now reflects the liberation of God's people from the bondage of sin. Here's our next question. What was the setting of Passover? What was the setting of Passover? There's going to be an image that comes on the screen, and this is just to give you a basic idea. A typical Passover table had a large plate that contained a roasted lamb bone and a roasted egg, bitter herbs, and a mixture of fruits and nuts. There'd be a dish of salt water and three pieces of unleavened bread, one stacked on top of the other. Each place setting had a cup of which four different cups of wine would be poured and received. And then in the center of the table, there was going to be a larger cup of wine referred to as the cup of Elijah. Each of these different cups, they represented one of the promises of redemption that God gave his people just before their deliverance from Egypt. Back over in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, the promises that God gave his people were these. I will free you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you, and I will take you to be my people. The rabbis could not figure out if there was a fifth promise that was also included, and that is, I will bring you into the land. They didn't know if that was a part associated with the Exodus or if that was a promise simply given to God's people as they entered into the land. And it was for that reason that they put a fifth cup of wine in the center of the table for Elijah to decide that exact question whenever he came to announce his final messianic redemption. As the feast began, the leader of the group, who was usually the father of the house, he would hold up a piece of unleavened bread, and here's what he would say. This is the bread of affliction, the poor bread, 
which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in want share in this Passover. Now we celebrate here. Next year in the land of Israel. Now we are still slaves. Next year may we all be free. The first cup of wine is now poured. It corresponds with God's promise, I will free you. This initial cup of wine, it was comprised of red wine mixed with 50% water. The father who was presiding over the Passover meal would give thanks, and he referred to this cup as the fruit of the vine. There'd be a ceremonial washing of hands that preceded the main part of the meal, and this was to signify the fact that there needed to be moral and spiritual cleansing, and there needed to be holiness of heart as a person went through Passover. That same part has now transferred into our celebration of communion. At the very beginning, before we receive the communion elements, we take time to prayerfully reflect and to make sure there's no unconfessed sin that is in our lives. Next, the host would take a mixture of bitter herbs and dip them into the salt water and give them to the group to eat. The bitter herbs were to remind the people of the bondage that they left, and the salt water was to remind them of the tears that they cried. After this, the bitter herbs and the pieces of unleavened bread were dipped in a mixture referred to as charaseth. Charseth was composed of finely ground apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts. And when it was mixed together, it became this thick brown paste that was to remind them of the mud that was used while making bricks back in Egypt. When the bitter herbs were eaten with the charseth, it was to remind the people of the bitterness of bondage. Listen, coupled with the sweetness of deliverance. At this point, the youngest of the group would usually ask, what is the meaning of this feast? And that allowed the father of the house to explain what the celebration was about. Now the second cup of wine would be poured. This cup corresponds with God's promise, I will deliver you. The second cup of wine, it's poured, but it's not received at this point. And it allowed the story of the Passover to be shared. That's when the father would remind his family of God's promises to Abraham and the story of the Exodus and the law that was given on Mount Sinai. That was the time that they would sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 to express their praise and their thanks to God for his mighty acts of redeeming power. The second cup of wine is now received and the main part of the meal would be eaten at this point. The one presiding over the meal, usually again the father of the house, he would take the second piece of bread from the middle and he would break it in two and here's what he would say. While in Egypt your lives were broken with poverty and you only had pieces, not whole loaves, there will come a day when the pieces of your life will be made whole. Then the host would take that middle piece, a piece that's broken half, and it's called the afikamen, and he would hide it somewhere in the house. At the end of the celebration, the children of the home were encouraged to search the home and to try to find this half of a piece of bread. 
Once the afikamen was hid, the father washed his hands and he broke off pieces of unleavened bread and lamb and he gave it to the group to eat. They would dip those pieces in charoseth and then they would eat it. It's believed that it's at this time that Jesus said, based on Matthew 26, 21 through 23, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say, surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Since each of the disciples had dipped their hand in the bowl with Jesus, they still didn't know who that was going to be. It's at this moment it's believed that Judas now steps out of the room. It's also believed at this moment that Jesus began to change the meaning of the elements. That now brings us to this third cup of wine. Cup number three, it corresponds with God's promise, I will redeem you. After the third cup of wine is poured, another blessing is said. This third cup is called the cup of blessing. When you understand that it had a specific title, we now understand other passages. For example, Paul calls it by name in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, saying, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Now there would be cup number four. It corresponds with God's promise, I will take you to be my people as the meal concludes, they would sing Psalm 115 through Psalm 118, and that fourth cup of wine would be received. The entire meal was focused on God's redeeming love. That brings us to our third question. What makes communion a sacrament? Some of you might be wondering at this point if Passover in Jesus' day was celebrated with a roasted lamb bone and herbs and unleavened bread and this thick, pasty substance and salt water. Why is it that we only celebrate with bread and wine? Why is the significance? Why did the change happen? Well, the answer to this comes back to that word sacrament. If you'll remember our basic definition, here's a, a little bit, I guess, uh, a scaled down version of that. That is the sacraments, they were put in practice by Jesus and they reflect Christ's redemption of sinners and they symbolize God's inner work in the believer's life. We celebrate only with bread and wine today because those are the two that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. He was the one who drew special attention to those two parts of the elements. Jesus said of the bread, this is my body. The bread is a common object with greater significance and meaning for his followers. Originally, if you'll remember the unleavened bread, it symbolized a severance of the old life in Egypt, that it was a separation from worldliness and sinful influences. And as Christians, salvation is made possible because of the body of Christ that has been broken for us. When we receive communion bread today, it reminds us that we too have been called out of a former life of sinfulness and worldliness, and we too are to step forward in a life of righteousness and holiness. The second part of the sacrament is that of wine. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Grapes were placed under this press until the juice flowed out in a steady stream of crimson liquid. 
Jesus says this wine, it represents his blood that will be shed for us. As the soldiers spread our Savior's hands on the cross and nailed them to the cross, his blood flowed for us. When a crown of thorns was pressed onto our Savior's brow and ripped into his flesh, his blood flowed for us. When a spear was thrust into his side to make sure he was dead, his blood flowed for us. One of the reasons that we struggle to remember the significance of communion is we've made communion something of beauty. We have gold and silver serving trays. We have cute little tiny cups. We have perfectly symmetrical wafers. And over the last couple of years, as there's been issues with COVID, we've used the prearranged packaged ones to, to try to alleviate concerns. And listen, I understand why we've done it. I understand why we've got to where we are today. I get that. But listen, I'm afraid that in our practice of communion, the horrid symbolism of a beaten body has been removed. The frightful imagery of his blood that we shed for us, that imagery is almost gone. Communion is not a picture of beauty. It is a reminder of sacrifice. Communion is designed to disturb our conscience, reminding us of the price that was paid for redemption. It is supposed to bring us back to a place of brokenness and submission and solemnity. It is supposed to strip us of any pride that might well up in our spirit and say, you've got nothing to be proud of. If you're going to boast, boast in Jesus Christ. Communion is weighty. Here's our fourth question. What is symbolized through communion? We've already touched on a lot of the symbolism of the feast, but I want to point out several things that we went through pretty quickly in the significance for us as believers. Now, some of these are connections and inferences that are based on how Jesus depicted himself through the communion elements. Others of these have come out of 2,000 years of church history as we look back and we try to see what was it that Jesus was saying in this moment. So let me try to do this as calmly and at the same time excitedly as I possibly can. Passover was celebrated with three pieces of unleavened bread. There was specific attention given to that second piece. That's important. God has revealed himself to us in three persons. Father, Son, 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 and Holy Spirit. The Son is second person of Trinity. Isaiah 53, 10 tells us that God was pleased to bruise him, making him an offering for sin. It's not that the father delighted in the pain of his son, but the father was pleased with what the suffering of Jesus was going to accomplish for us. So what happened when the second piece of bread was broken? Half of it was hidden by the father so that the children could find it after the feast. 
The other half was received by those who were participating in the feast. Jesus is the one who said, this is my body which has been broken for you. What happened with his body when it was broken for us? We find that his physical body was hid away in a borrowed tomb. And according to scripture, it tells us that his spirit went and preached liberty to the captives. The Old Testament saints, have you ever thought for a moment about what happened to all of those who had passed away looking towards the future Messiah? It was the Old Testament saints that they went to what has been referred to in Scripture as paradise or Abraham's bosom. Do you remember what happened on the cross when the sinner turns to Jesus and Jesus says, this day you'll be with me, not heaven, paradise. Now, sometimes we get that stuff mixed up a little bit, and that's a whole other message in theology, but here's what's going on in this moment. It tells us that his spirit went and preached liberty to the captives so that Ephesians 4.8 says, when Christ rose from the dead, he led captive a host of captives. So here's the other part of that. Who was to look for the piece of bread at the end of the celebration? The children. Jesus says in Mark 10.15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Did you know that it requires a person to humble themselves like a child to receive the gospel message? So what happened when the child would find the piece of bread? The father would give him a reward. What happens when a person enters relationship with Jesus? They find the bread of life. Our heavenly father gives an incredible reward. It's called eternal life. What were the promises represented in the four cups of wine? Notice the pronoun at the beginning of each of these. I will free you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. In that, God is the great deliverer. Today, as we celebrate communion and we look back, we celebrate 100% because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 100%. All glory goes to Jesus. All praise goes to Jesus. All honor goes to Jesus. The communion table is to reorient us once again to the unfathomable glory of God. Whenever we receive communion, it's not intended to be a religious act that we endure. It's not a filler in a church service. It's not a rote act of obedience to mindlessly participate in. It is intended to stop us in our tracks in the midst of a busy life and remind us that we have what we have and we are where we are because of Jesus who has set us free. It is intended to bring us face to face again with the price that was paid for our redemption. When people see that price that's been paid, listen, your worship will be stronger. Your devotion to Jesus will be stronger. Your excitement about what he has done will be stronger. It is a reminder that we could never do enough to make ourselves righteous before God, but God has done everything necessary to make us righteous in Jesus Christ. It is a reminder 
reminder that Jesus is the bread of life and he alone satisfies. It is a reminder that none of us were ever worthy and yet Jesus called us anyway. It is a reminder that his blood still saves and his grace is still sufficient and the ground at the cross is level. It is comprised of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. It is a reminder, oh, listen again, it is a reminder that once we were all slaves, and listen, but Jesus freed us. He delivered us. He redeemed us. And he has made us to be his people. All glory to God. All glory to God. The sacrament of communion, it uses simple objects to point to a deeper spiritual reality for those who have eyes to see and a heart to understand. So as we close out the preaching part of this message and this service, here's my question for you. Can you see him a little bit clearer now? after you see him through his word? Is it possible that for all of us, myself included, it's so important that we need to take moments to think deeply about communion because of the fact that we lose the significance and the rush and the fast pace of life? Let me ask you this. Since communion is a thing that is to be celebrated with the people of God. It's for the redeemed. Does that describe you? Has there ever been a time in your life when Jesus redeemed you? See, as we celebrate communion, this is one of those pieces that if we're not careful once again, we go through the motions and we miss what it's all about. It should leave us in a place of humility, leave us in a place of awe for what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. The entire focus of communion comes back to the redemptive work of God. I want to make sure that everybody who's in here, you understand, anybody who is watching online, you understand the simple, beautiful story that comes in the gospel. Here's it. This is the, the message of the gospel. This is the good news. The Bible tells us that humanity was created for relationship with God. That's why we're here. It also tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just that few have sinned, all have sinned. The Bible tells us there was nothing that we could ever do to make things right ourselves. And if the story ended there, it would be nothing but bad news. But the Bible goes on to say that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The Bible tells us that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the grave three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who turn from their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. Today, if 
You have never placed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you would like to. Today, if you recognize there's something inside of you that is saying, he's talking to you. If you're recognizing that there is a draw, that there is a pull within your heart to know that you are right with God, then I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. And this is between you and God. This is a prayer that allows somebody to step into the gift of eternal life. allows them to step into their created purpose. But it's also one that brings a person into the family of God. So here's what that simple prayer would be. That's, it's between you and God. Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. I know that my sin has separated me from you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That he rose again on the third day. It's best I know how I place faith in what Jesus has done for me. Would you save me? Would you give me eternal life? With heads still bowed and eyes still closed for just a moment, if you have prayed with me, wherever you might be in this room for just a moment, if you prayed to receive Christ just then, would you just lift your hand wherever you might be for just a moment? Thank you. Thank you. You may put them down. We're about to open up a time of invitation and our pastors and some of their wives are going to be staying at the end of the aisles. And it might be that today you simply need to come and talk to a pastor about what the next step might look like for salvation. It might be that you need somebody to pray with you. It might be that some people today just want to come and, and pray and just say, God, give me fresh eyes to see what I'd just grown accustomed to seeing over the years. However that's going to be, I want you to follow what the Spirit of God is prompting you to do. If you want to have a word of prayer, our pastors will be at the end of the aisles. We're just going to go through a time of invitation, and then we're going to come back and receive communion as a church in just a moment. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We thank you, God, for how you are moving. And Lord, we ask today that your will be done in this place. God, give us fresh eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. You may stand as we sing.